Onassis Foundation. Welcome to the Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, LA, and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holden Graber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. So, hi, I'm Jacqueline Novogratz, and I'm thrilled that the wonderful Paul Holden Graber invited me to do a guest podcast recording for the Quarantine Tapes. I also want to thank the Onassis Foundation, Onassis Los Angeles, and Dub Lab for producing this show. Today, I have the great honor of speaking with Tim Brown, the inimitable chair of IDEO, one of the world's most influential creative and forward-thinking design firms. Tim is also the author of Change by Design, and, um, and it's really wonderful to know you're on the line, Tim. Hey, Jacqueline, it's, it's really wonderful to speak with you. You know, we don't get to do it often enough. And uh, no, I'm uh, <clears throat> honored that you would uh, you would invite me on the show. So thank you. I'm really honored to be here. Um, so I want to start, Tim, the way that Paul always begins, which is to ask how you have spent the past 18 months during this extraordinary time in our history in this pandemic. And where are you now? So I am in Sonoma, California, just north of San Francisco. And uh you know, we were very fortunate uh, and very privileged to have a, a place that we was was a kind of our weekend place that we would retreat to when we weren't uh, either in the city or more often not you know, on an airplane somewhere in the world. And uh, uh, it was a beautiful little patch of land up in the Sonoma wine country. And when the lockdown happened in San Francisco in the middle of March or whenever it was, we decided to come up here. Uh, and this is where we've been ever since. Essentially, I've just made my first forays out into the world over the last couple of months and made a few trips. But up until a couple of months ago, we, we, we know maybe two or three brief trips into San Francisco, but we'd spent our, we spent our whole time up here amongst the oak trees and the coyotes and bobcats and turkeys. And uh, it's been, it's been really quite beautiful to be honest with you. I think of you as so urban and that sounds downright pastoral. And yet you also have gone through these wildfires in addition to the pandemic. Well, that always adds a little bit of extra excitement when we live in this part of the world. It's, uh, it's rather smoky today, actually, um, uh, not from fires that are around here, but from the ones that are coming from up north. But uh, yeah, it, it makes uh, makes for the the fall to be a little bit uh, a little bit exciting. You have to be ready to jump in your car and uh, and get out of Dodge if uh, if there's a, a, a evacuation warning. And it's an unfortunate sign that it's not just more and more of the West, but also other parts of the world are obviously struggling with uh with this uh, with this issue but uh, you know other than that it's been it's been pretty nice and you know and i've been continuing to do the best i can to work as a you know as a designer and and uh collaborated with interesting people over the last over the last 18 months using uh using all these remote technologies it's been quite an experience mm, well actually i wanted to um go there tim because it's it's not lost on me that you made a, ma- a major transition um less than a year before the pandemic started, um, after having spent nearly 20 years as the CEO of IDEO to becoming the chair. And so in that time of transition, when the world was going through a massive transition, I'm just wondering what have been some of the reflections, how you did spend spend your time and um, what have you learned about transition? Well, I think, uh, I mean, it was um, uh, remarkable timing, <laughs> not obviously, uh, not one that I, I, I imagined or envisaged. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that if Sandy, Sandy Spiker, who took over as CEO from me, had envisaged it, she would not have said yes. <laughs> um, because it's been, it's been really has been a very difficult time as it has to lead any organization uh, with all of the uncertainty, all of the, the sort of extra needs that everybody has, I think, in a, in a, in a, in a situation like this. And it really been very difficult. And uh, she's done a wonderful, a wonderful job. You know, I, I think for me, the, you know, the first thing I learned, which is I, I imagine something that everybody learns when they go through a transition, when they've been used to running something, particularly a, a, an organization, organization like IDEO that I deeply love and, and just love uh, being a leader, uh, 
the first thing to was just just to be able to let go, right? I mean, it's really hard to let go. Um, it's hard not to be involved in every decision or at least know about what's going on. It's hard not to be involved in so many conversations. And in some ways, I would say the isolation of being in sort of a remote, it's, it helped in a funny kind of way. It was agonizing at the beginning, but but then I quickly realized, you know, if I'm not invited to a conversation, I'm never going to know about it. Uh, uh, and so just let go, forget about it. Don't worry about it. Uh, focus on the things that you care about. And so I, I, it enabled me to switch my attention from from the management of IDEO, which is a, you know, like any even moderately sized organization. And we're not huge, but you know, big enough for it to be a complex activity. From from focusing on that, I switched my focus back to the, the other great passion of my life, which is design. Uh, and, you know, I started to think about a lot of, you know, a lot of different things, but, you know, what's the changing role of design? Uh, I started to engage with clients in some really interesting ways. Uh, right at the beginning, I, I kind of dived into a whole bunch of pandemic related things, uh, helped out on a couple of task forces um, and uh, started working on some on some programs that were directly related to COVID, which I must say for me was a huge help in dealing with the dealing with the situation. Uh, I don't know this, if this is something you've ever felt, but when there's a kind of huge existential problem, but you can't actually engage with it, it's just very stressful. But when you start to engage with it, when you can actually maybe try and even if it's only in like a tiny corner, see if you can't work on some sort of solution, it makes a huge it makes a huge difference. And so we were working on some kind of health passporting work just to help people start to imagine how they were going to move around in, the, in a world of testing and vaccination. Uh, we start, we worked on some early kind of vaccine hesitancy things, and, and it was just massively helpful to be able to dive into projects that were related to this huge kind of global problem that we were facing. Yeah, Tim, you're really, you're making me think about Adam Grant and his mm. article on languishing. And um, I had a conversation with him and he said, you know, Jacqueline, have you been languishing? And I, I laughed. I said, well, you know, Acumen, my organization, focuses on poverty around the world, and this is a time of crisis. So it's been the opposite. I have felt so used, mm-hmm. and um, and that's what I'm thinking about with you, Tim. That idea that you went from maybe your own sort of languishing of who am I going through transition mm-hmm. to actually I have something really important to offer the world, and mm-hmm. um, and you used it. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I you know, I've met, there have definitely been moments over the eighteen months where I, I've had to find different ways of motivating myself. Uh, you know the, the rush of running of running an organization where you're called upon constantly. Um, you know makes it easy to be honest with you. Uh, being on the road all the time makes it easy. You're kind of running from one next one one thing to the next. And instead, being you know uh, in a place where you know the days are very different. I mean, yes, lots of Zoom meetings, of course, but um, uh, but needing to find paths that were uh, that that I was kind of initiating a little bit more was was different. And there were moments when I found that quite difficult. But I'm. I've certainly, you know, over time got a lot more comfortable with it and, and, and found it very exciting, actually, to get back to some of the things that I think are fundamentally important about design, like thinking about the future and not just being totally involved in the present. And so I, I, I'm, you know, I, I have to say in a slightly guilty way, I must admit, um, you know, in some ways feel grateful for this for this moment. And uh, I, know, I know that isn't I wonder how I'm supposed to feel in a situation like this, but it has actually offered some opportunities to me that I'm that I'm quite grateful grateful for. Hmm. I want to I want to go into that, Tim. And I mean, everything you're saying obviously has so much resonance with me in 20 years of doing this work and thinking about how we owe it to ourselves in the world to keep renewing, and that's what you're essentially doing, Tim. Um, a couple of questions. One, just as a just to set. Um, have kind of an equal set for people who don't really understand what design is. What is design and design thinking? You write so eloquently about it in your book. So that's question number one. And then I'll actually ask you my second question when you finish. Yeah, this one might take a little while to get through. So yes, that's probably a good idea. Um, uh, And stop me if I'm rambling on too too, too long. But my, my definition of design is extremely broad, and it, and it, it actually it was it was inspired by um, things that uh, Herbert Simon, you know, the, the Nobel laureate, wrote about in the fifties. And it essentially is whenever we're seeking to shape the world to meet our needs, our human needs, then we're designing. Mm. Design is the act of shaping the world to meet our needs. It's not just simply the um, the making of beautiful objects. Um, 
uh, or the decorating of our homes. <laughs> it, it, it really is everything we do to shape the world to meet, meet our needs. Um, and the reason why I think, why, why I use such a, a kind of a, a universal and all-encompassing definition of design is because there aren't very many ways in which the world takes its shape, right? It either takes its shape through nature, uh, uh, and obviously that has, you know, uh, that's the way the world got to where it is, um, or it takes its shape by accident, and there are a lot of things that happen in the world that we, we do unintentionally, or we, we decide to make the world in a certain way. And when we decide to make the world in a certain way, we make choices, we explore alternatives sometimes, and then we end up making something that, that the best that we can manage it meets whatever needs we had, we had at the time. And, and, and I really think that's what design is. Um, it can be applied at the micro level um, of, you know, I'm, I wanna have a dinner party and I wanna shape that experience to be the best possible experience for all my friends that are coming. Or at a macro level, we need to shape new systems that deliver the outcomes we need, like healthcare, in different ways because our old systems are not working. So we can we can go to the very largest scale, or we can go to the tiniest scale. But the basic processes and mindsets that you that apply to that are essentially the same. And that's what I call design thinking. Hmm. And yet, Tim, the ordering of the sentence that you've just articulated to shape the world to meet our needs might confuse people in a world where it feels like big systems have been shaped to create new needs um, or to turn our needs into wants or rather our wants into needs. And so uh, you've always represented to me that we start with the needs and then shape the systems, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Why do we do the opposite so often and, and what's it been like to be at the front of that movement to flip it? Well, I mean, I mean, you know, if if you want to really get deep into it, I mean, to be honest with you, one one creates the other. Whenever you whenever you shape the world to meet needs, you end up creating new needs. It's almost inevitable, right? Because uh, because in shaping the world, you change our perception of the world. You change what's available to people. Uh, they might interact with that thing or that experience, and then realize, well, actually, something else now is missing, or something, or that leads them to something else. So there's inevitable kind of and backwards and forwards between between how we create the world and the needs that we have in the world. So I think that's that, that's just the way it is. But, you know, obviously the 20th century was very much about building a society based on consumerism, um, which created this economic growth by, by developing wants, <laughs> desires, by developing desires. Uh, that may have been based fundamentally on needs. I mean, we had a need to move around. We created desires to acquire motor cars. Um, uh, um, we were actually, I mean, motor cars satisfy a need that we have to be mobile. And the choice between which motor car is based on desire. <laughs> um, and so there's a relationship between them. But the whole, but the whole of consumerism was built on this um, very successful economic benefit that came from creating desires and, and, and satisfying those desires. Uh, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't think there's anything particularly Ill um, illegitimate about that, other, other than the fact that it can, it can lead to enormous amounts of excess. And it can leave aside those people who don't necessarily have access, for whatever reason, uh, to those you know to those products and services and experiences that we might we might be creating. Uh, for me, it was it, I mean, the, the, it's a sort of a spectrum between need and desire. Uh, I, I don't think there's necessarily a discontinuity between them. You know, when we think about food. I mean, we can. I mean, we have a need for food, but do food can be high, highly desirable when it's presented in certain forms, um, uh, in certain in, in certain in certain ways. And I think most things are like that. Uh, but I just feel like we've consumerism lost sight of the fact that there are many, many, many things that human society uh, and that communities actually need that we are not designing for. Mm. And uh, and and so that you know, I mean, I think in, you know, in your work, in my, you know, in, in some of my work, I've been looking to expand the definitions of design, the applications of design to um, to those folks who have been ignored, to be honest, because perhaps they weren't, you know, economically in a, in a situation where they could afford to buy the products and services that the industry wished to make. And so in that way, I, I guess this pandemic has really asked all of us to reimagine and renew how we think about systems and design might play a completely new role. And I wonder if this is something you've been thinking about and how you would answer that. Well, I certainly think we have real, I mean, it's become so much more apparent how interconnected we are in our society that, that you know, I think we've got, 
this false sense, perhaps, that we could isolate ourselves in our own kind of economic communities where if we were well off, we could we could isolate ourselves from the rest of the world. We could have the experiences we wanted to have. We could buy the things we wish to buy um, and, and, and to some degree kind of ignore everybody else. Uh, when you have something like, a you know, obviously a, a virus doesn't care about, you know, what economic status you have. I mean, clearly um, there have been plenty of examples of people with wealth being able to, or privilege, being able to kind of protect themselves in different ways. But still, essentially, I think that this pandemic has showed how interconnected we are. It has most definitely shown how, how, how systems that we have perhaps largely ignored or not paid enough attention to, like our public health systems, leave us all vulnerable, not just those that we've traditionally thought as, uh, as vulnerable, but it leaves us all vulnerable. Um, and, uh, uh, and I hope that uh, we will see an improvement in our ability to think and invest in uh, in these systems, to say particularly things systems like public health, in a way that um, protects all of us, not just not not just some of us. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, whether it's uh, the kind of lack of understanding and information we have about uh, about matters of public health, which obviously are causing enormous issues around things like vaccine hesitancy. Um, you know, in, in, in many countries, not just here in the United States, although uh, perhaps to a greater degree here in the, in the United States, um, or, or whether it's simply access to the, to the facilities and care that, that uh, you know, some communities just don't have, or whether it's the way we think about our, you know, folks that we've termed as, as, as essential workers and what it really means to be able to uh, create a healthy environment uh, uh, for, for, for people to work in kind of frontline kinds of activities when we have the presence of these kinds of viruses. So a lot of problems we just have, haven't thought about, uh, uh, perhaps for a very long time, uh, that we're now having to think about. So Tim, how do you even begin to think about designing a better system to confront vaccine hesitancy? Talk about daunting. It is daunting. And I, and I think the lessons we've all learned as we've, as, as, as we've tried to engage in, in these more kind of complex systems levels, um, challenges is that you cannot design a whole system you, you can't i mean th- th- this is one of the things where where it's important that there's sort of a there's an important mindset shift you have to have as in design as you go from the micro to the macro is that you know you might be able to you can design a chair you can even design a, an automobile even though that's pretty complex as a whole thing you cannot design a complex system like a public health system as a whole thing. It's made of far too many parts. Um, it already exists for one thing, and you can't start. From, you can't start from a blank sheet of paper, which means that you have to look for the places where um, you can engage, uh, reshape something, do that um, in a place where, where that might then have leverage. Uh, and so, you know, one of one of the places that we've found that we've had quite a bit of success. Um, in a number of different systems areas, actually, is to think about not so much what are the solutions that you need there, but what are the tools that a community might need that they could use in order to um, in order in, in, in order to improve a particular situation. So, in the case of vaccine hesitancy, there's a little doubt in my mind that that most of the progress that's going to be made uh, around that is not through top-down campaigns that get um, that, that you know they get communicated to everybody, but by communities working with trusted community members to uh, help educate people and see that you know their perhaps their perceptions are, were, were were wrong or perhaps they didn't understand some some truths and some realities, which means we need to get these camp, the, the, these efforts right down into the community level, whether it's schools or, 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 or other forms of local communities or churches or whatever it might be. And for that, um, we need, you know, uh, these communities need help. They need tools to help them communicate, uh, you know, visual communication, storytelling, these kinds of things. So that's one way we found that often you can create leverage. You can create a kind of a t- uh, toolkits to help communities create little campaigns for themselves or maybe it's events or whatever it might be um, uh, that, that can, can that can connect with the people um, that are part of their community uh, and and so you know, and that's one area that, that that we you know that we actually have been working on is what some of these toolkits might look like that then will be useful to local communities so bottom-up trust building truth telling this word trust though at a time when we have so many competing truths mm. How do you even use design to think about navigating literally competing to truths in a low trust time? I tend to 
and this might be a slightly narrow or even maybe even naive view, but I, th I think there are two forms of trust is communicated in in different ways and or or, or is or is experienced in different ways. One is in the abstract, um, uh, which is through through information, uh, which you have to believe in the abstract. You have to either believe in the person or you have to believe in the information that, that person's giving you. There's another form of trust, which is actually engaging in things together that happens um, where the trust is built between the people. And then the information is more trusted because you have the trust between the people. And, uh, and so, you know, my view is that we need as many, we need to find as many opportunities as we can for people to engage with each, with, with, with each other, to carry out activities together that maybe make a difference in the community. I mean, I'm thinking of things like community gardens, uh, community kitchens, these sorts of places where people learn, where they meet each other, often from different parts of society, they engage in something together, they build relationships, and then what they communicate backwards and forwards is more trusted. Now, it's not infallible, and obviously we see plenty of, even inside families, which are theoretically trusted environments, people not trusting each other's knowledge, but I think it's a start. And so I think um, I'm, I'm sort of, of, of the view that we need to start with creating trusted relationships through engaged activities, and then we worry about the how, about the information that's that's then getting shared, rather than trying to convince people um, with the information itself. I think we, there is so much of that around. It's too easy to find sources of information which simply don't agree with each other. It's too hard to resolve that. So I think we have to start with the relationships between people, and then and then work from there. I love that. I mean, you and I have spent so much of our careers thinking about big global issues with other big global thinkers. And to hear you talking about neighbor to neighbor, community to community, uh, very much aligns with um, a project that I'm working on that I need to talk to you about um, offline somewhere. But around how do you connect our very definition of what it means to be a neighbor, um, building communities of greater trust that hold within themselves diversity, but in a way that reinforces belonging, and then connect that sense of neighbor to the recognition that our definition of neighborhood also has to include the people who make our clothes, grow our food, um, enable our lives. And yeah. I wonder if that's been something you've been thinking about at all. Well, I, I, I mean, the one thing I do think about with regard to that is that, uh, and this is a role, I think this is a role for design. It's long been for a role for design is that so many of those um, uh so many of those systems are invisible to us. So many of those relationships are invisible to us. And that one of the things that we can do with, um, with design is, is to try to help make those relationships and connections more visible. Um, so where is our food made? Who makes it? Where does it come from? How does it get to us? Instead of thinking, instead of the, the first time you think about the food that you consume being in the supermarket or the local bodega, or in the restaurant, um, can we have a deeper understanding of where all of that food comes from? And there's been a lot, you know, a, a lot of work done to do that. Um, more and more of that, and I think, and we're seeing that it makes a difference. We're seeing that when people understand which communities their food comes from, and what maybe ultimately then what the life is like for those in those communities, they start to think of the food differently. They think to think of those farmers differently, and I think that applies to so many more uh, of the of, of the of the systems that we uh, that we rely on but we know so little about uh, and we have so little engagement with and uh, now it you know it can get overwhelming it can be too much information so we'll have to we obviously have to pick and choose but I do think that we need to do a better job of revealing where things come from and how they're created and the people that are involved in that um, you know it's so different to think about you know, cheap clothing coming from, you know, Asia somewhere uh, versus seeing and understanding those factory workers in Bangladesh or in, uh, you know, Indonesia or Vietnam or wherever it might be or China. I mean, seeing that, understanding it in some way. I mean, this is a lot of the work that I think you've done is to increase the connection and visibility between these two worlds so that we know how to help each other in different ways. We can be better customers when we're in the wealthy North or the wealthy West, um, we can be better customers if we understand. Um, and uh, uh, but equally, the other way, um, you know, these these people who are providing such vital work for others um, can have a chance to connect to and understand and get benefit 
from those connections to you know to the to, to the wealthier part of society. And I just I, I just think we have to work harder and harder to reveal reveal these connections and make them apparent to people. Yeah, no, I love what you're saying. I love what you're saying. You know, our, we have a, a coffee company called Azahar, and um, it very much uh, focuses on building communities of trust with farmers and building in what they call a sustainable price so that the farmers can actually be paid a living wage, not just minimum wage. And what's been remarkable is by enabling real transparency to the buyers. So not even wealthy consumers, but buyers yeah. like Stump Town and Blue Bottle. I think 30% of companies, when given the choice to pay a fair wage, a minimum wage, or a sustainable living wage, 30% are choosing the sustainable living yeah. wage. And I think it's what you're talking about. The question is, which may be an impossible question to answer right now, but how do we scale that? How do we make this more a part of our daily consciousness, not just with premium coffee, but with everything that we buy? Well, I mean, exactly. I mean, over time, we build that visibility. We build that. We, we stop. I mean, we, it's too easy for us to, ex, to ignore. Uh, and, you know, our world's, our world's a complex, our world's a complex place, but it's too easy to ignore um, the implications. I mean, I think another another great example of the efforts that are being made right now around carbon labeling. Uh, I mean, it's so easy to ignore the embedded carbon in the things that we buy. But if we start to understand what it is, I, I, I do believe we'll make different choices. We'll make choices to buy products, use products that have lower embedded carbon because we know that everybody benefits uh, from that, including, including us. And it will start small and it will build and it won't be everybody. Um, uh, but 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 it will make a difference. And you know, I do think the thing that the moment we're in, which I'm tremendously excited about, is that as we're seeing the investment community engage around these uh, around these issues. Obviously, the work that you've done has been huge. Has been kind of a, kind of the vanguard of connecting, if you like, our financial and investment systems with understanding the world in a different way through the through the needs of the people that you know that are most in need, if you like. But I think with the rise of ESG investing as well, uh, you know, we're starting to see the financial community play a big role in, in sort of creating the creating a new set of constraints for the way kind of businesses and even us as cons consumers might uh, might operate. And so I mean, the forces that come from that will actually um, provide the opportunity perhaps to scale over time. So Tim, to play devil's advocate, um, you you know I obviously live in that place, but I've given a number of speeches and young people have said. Oh, Doc and great, but you're playing in the you're you're tinkering at the edges. What we have to do is destroy capitalism, replace it with another system entirely. And I sometimes feel like I'm in a ping pong match: capitalism, socialism, capitalism, socialism. And I wonder, um, in the context of that, I would argue non-conversation, how yeah. you would respond. Well, you know, it depends on your definitions of capitalism, right? Um, and uh, you know, I, I uh, you know, I, I try to be as uh, you know, as objective about this as I can, as I, as I can be. You know, what, you know, one of the books that that I read this year, that I right at the beginning of the pandemic, actually, uh, well, I was actually, I was actually part of the, to some degree, in a peripheral way, part of the creation of it, um, was uh, was Roger Martin's book. You know, when more is not better, which is all it's about, great. you know, it's it's all about, you know, where you get where where capitalism takes you when you're obsessed with efficiency, and what an alternative might be. And I think he makes a pretty good argument for for not that capitalism itself is broken. It's the way, we, but the ways we've applied capitalism in the last 50, 60 years has been has been broken. That if you like, shareholder capitalism is a bad idea, or at least an extreme that um, has created extreme outcomes that we didn't like. Um, and so that's one. So that book's been uh, had a big influence. But also, I think, I mean, the truth is. It's, you know, if you look at, you know, we've got a whole bunch of parallel experiments going on around the world in terms of different different societies which have set themselves up in different ways. And so many of the ones that we tend to point to as being most successful are capitalist societies, but with a very, but they're kind of a, the right inter, interconnection between socialism and capitalism. You know, whether it's, you know, and, and, you know, I will admit that they're often smaller countries where it's easier to make these things work. But, um, uh, you know, whether it's Scandinavia, uh, uh, or um, you know, or or, or or New Zealand, or other other parts of the world, which have somehow created a balance between the the characteristic of capitalism, which is most important to me, which is which is this um, which is this idea of investing in the future, 
But what capitalism creates is, 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 is an opportunity to invest in the future, to say, we're going to create something better. We're going to invest money, money now and capital now in order to create something better that we will all get a return from, not just in terms of money, but in terms of what that does and what that, what that does in society. That it seems to me a fundamentally good idea. Um, and I would not like to throw this idea of investing in the future out, but, but uh, we need to do that in such a way that creates positive outcomes and, and at least fulfills the basic needs we have for, um, for all people. And so kind of laissez-faire capitalism, extreme libertarianism, they don't work in my view, but, um, but there are forms of capitalism, uh, particularly when they're attached to, de uh, to democracy. Uh, you know, democratic capitalism is a pretty good idea. Uh, when it uh, is constrained in such a way that it creates the right social outcomes, which you know, which means the right tax policies and and the right re, you know redistribu redistribution policies to to ensure that happens. And we and, and you know we've we've got examples where it, where you know where it can work. Which are also this may sound tangential, but I don't think it is because what you're making me think about also goes back to the conversation about needs and desire. And and one of the things that you've taught me, Tim is the importance of beauty in design, um, including for the very poor. And I think about times that you've come with me uh, to India to see some of the companies that we've supported and how closely you listen to very poor people as customers and think about ways of designing, not only to be more functional for their needs, but more, um, more appealing for their own desires for beauty, for, um, for a sense of dignity in the world. And I wonder what role beauty has pay, played in the way that you think about designing systems um, and what, what we need to think about now when beauty may be the last thing on people's minds, given how uncertain and dark the world might feel. I think in many ways for me, beauty is a proxy for other things. It, it's a way of representing this notion of wholeness, of connectedness, of meaning. Um, I mean, when when one sense something is beautiful, what's what's going on, you know, between one, if you like, one's eyes, the experience, and one's brain is, you're you're taking something in. I mean, whether it's a beautiful flower or a or a uh, or a wonderful building or, or or a moment, you're taking something in, and your and your brain is processing it in such a way that it sees the the connectedness with that thing, the what it what it means to you. Um, and that that elicits a great feeling, right? That that that, that elicits a feeling of appreciation, of of, a, of an understanding of the moment, of an engagement with the world, of a presence, and 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 that is a feeling that as human beings we all deserve. Right? That is not a feeling that should be the privilege um, of the of the wealthy. Um, uh, it 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 really we all deserve it. We all need it. I think it, it helps bring um, meaning to life. Uh, and uh, and the and the and the wonderful thing is, it can be created. Beauty can be created with no resources, um, just as easily as it can be created with lots of resources. It's just a it's a question of one's cleverness. Mm, I love that. And you know, and 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 you know, what I found when I travel with you was so many examples where where entrepreneurs, uh, people were striving for beauty in their own terms without a whole lot of resources and achieve and, and achieving it. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that's, you know, in many ways, I think that that is more admirable and more beautiful than when we have vast resources uh, at, at our disposal. I love that. Alain de Botton says beauty is the promise of happiness. I think that's a great definition. Um, and it's, uh, well, it's, it's not just a promise, though. I think it's, it is also an appreciation. It is a, and a kind of an appreciation of the world that in itself is a form of happiness. Uh, it's a it's a connection to the world. I mean, to to see something and understand it to a level of appreciating its beauty um, is to be engaged with it. Is to it, uh, is to be connected with that thing or that moment. Uh, and uh, I I think that's a deeply and innately human thing. I love that, Tim. I love that, Tim. When you look at the 20th century and now, all of us in this interdependent, much more fragile, um, highly uncertain. 21st century. I've heard you talk about um, new superpowers that we have to uh, learn. And one of them is convening, which I was surprised by and interested in. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that in the context of solving these big problems that we have and building the new systems that we need that are coming out of this pandemic. Well, I think, I mean, convening has always been a 
human superpower. Let's let's face it. We've convened. We brought. We've come together to do things uh, ever since the kind of birth of human society. Um, I think you know, arguably, the late twentieth century and the and the early twenty first century has been a boom for a certain kind of convening, which is the convening to share information. And you know, you know, an organization that you and I love, TED, has been archetypical of that. I mean, Chris and and everybody at TED has done a, it's a wonderful job of convening in order to, in order to share new insights and new and, and new stories. And that's that's extremely powerful. Obviously, social media networks have 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 convened in order to share information in extremely powerful, sometimes constructive, sometimes destructive ways. But there's another form of convening that I'm interested in, which is convening that actually um, is about acting together, actually making something together, creating something together. Um, I, you know, I've, the archetypal example of that is barn raising. You know, when a, when a community comes together and over a day, will literally build a new barn for, for some member of that community. Uh, that's a very powerful, highly coordinated um, uh, act. And I feel like uh, that what we need right now we don't have enough of is is essentially barn racing, where we come together to act as a community, not simply to talk uh, or debate as a as a as a community. Um, you know, I think there are whether you know whether it's around you know getting everybody in the community vaccinated or or, or whether it's around um, bringing healthier foods into our in, into parts of our in our urban communities which don't have access uh, to, 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 uh, through things like community gardens. Um, uh, barn raising acts, right? Where we come together and we do something to, be, to get uh, we, you know, uh, together. And uh, I think whether it's at that local scale or even at the kind of uh, uh, global scale, uh, I think we, more, I think that's a superpower we need more of. I think we need to discover ways of doing that. I mean, the internet has been a very powerful medium for um, sharing ideas. It's been a less powerful medium for direct collaboration, although that's beginning to change. Uh, and I think some of the new technologies that are emerging from the latest iterations of the web, some of these technologies of trust that some of these crypto technologies rely on, actually make it easier for people to do things together, even if they're remote from each other, um, uh, because they manage trust. Well, I mean, you know, we're certainly seeing people come together to work on projects. Uh, there's a nice little, a nice little example. Um, one of the organizations that came together to work on Elon Musk's Hyperloop idea. Is an organized Hyperloop, uh, HTT, Hyperloop Transportation Technologies, I think they call themselves. They were formed with a core group of only about 60 people, about another 800 engineers around the world signed on to work on that project, many of them remotely. Um, and But they've all got other jobs, right? They're not, they're not hired by, um, but they participate and they get a little bit of equity, I think, um, in order to participate. Um, but they've come together to work on this, you know, amazing piece of technology that could be quite uh, quite a breakthrough in terms of high-speed transportation. And they've done it because they want to work on a cool problem, right? Uh, and uh, we need we need more and more of that. We need more and more. And, you know, the open source software movement is a great example right, of, of communities that come together to work on something that they believe on, believe in. And I think that I think the 21st century needs a lot of that kind of convening to act together, to build together, to make together um, uh, uh, for the benefit of hopefully many, many of us. As I listen to it, it strikes me, and, and I wonder if I'm right, but that in in our generation, there were the do-gooders that worked in the nonprofit sector, and then there was everybody that was serious and was making money, and I was always tagged as a do-gooder, and it drove me crazy. Um, and now what I see or sense is that there's a growing recognition that the most interesting, challenging, hardest work is that work of solving problems. We don't have as many outlets as we need. And so I'm wondering if there, if barn raising might be a piece of, of getting more people into that space of solving problems, including people who are frustrated sitting at big corporations where they may not feel um, that there is the kind of humanistic design thinking, creative uh, right. kind of environment right. that you create and that you are always thinking about. I think that might be true. And this also might be the place where we get our redefinition of capitalism too, right? Because in, I mean, one of, one of the pieces that I think people feel like is broken about capitalism is it does not work on these problems, right? It, it tends to favor the ones that have simple economic outcomes that people can get their return on capital from. But, uh, you know, I think we can, I think what we're beginning to see with uh, 
um, is is that we can actually create a return based on people's participation, not simply based on the money that they put into the system at the beginning. It's a bit like the old idea of cooperatives, um, but now managed in a, in a new and a different in a, in, in a different way. Um, and and you know, I think it might be possible to imagine versions of, of of capitalism which really do blend or you know um, what we thought of traditionally non-profit activities and for, um, and and for profit activities, uh, and that we and that we reward those who don't just make the most money or put in the most money, but who actually create the most impact or put in the um, or, or put in the most work. Uh, and there's, I don't see any reason why that shouldn't that shouldn't be possible. We can just choose that's what we're going to measure and that's and that and that's what we're going to reward. Um, but it'll require some experimentation, I think, on the both organizationally and also how how we how we handle certain things like taxation, for instance. So I I I as you know, I love that you're saying that and it's where I live. It's easier to conceptualize, Tim, in thinking about the new technologies we have now, for instance, to assign value to a songwriter um, or any kind of artist using blockchain um, so that they're not getting just some lousy deal and trying to get pennies off uh, the intellectual property rights of their song every time it's played. I, you can see that kind of value accruing. Mm-hmm. It's harder to think about social impact that's created from doing the right thing in community um, supporting employees, uh, making sure that you're creating net positive for the environment. Have you seen models of that, or how do you even start to think about that? I mean, I don't. I mean, there are just beginning to be some really early, early experiments um, in uh, in those kinds of activities. Um, you know, I'm starting to see some crypto-based um, uh, organizations that are interested in in, in carbon credits, for instance. And and um, and actually, kind of more efficient and more effective um, management of carbon credits. That's an early example. That's easy in some way because carbon credit is already like a financial vehicle. At least you can think of it that way. Um, but uh, I think it'll spread. I think uh, I think it'll go beyond. It'll be, go beyond that. What I mean, my experience tends to be that you know the nature of these tech, software technologies is they start in the world of the abstract. And then they eventually get to the world, the concrete world that we can all, you know, we can all a bit more easily understand. And but I think it, I think it'll get, I think it'll get there. Um, I, I'm not smart enough to see what those, uh, what those will be. But uh, but there are a remarkable number of very very smart kids who are thinking about, uh, who are thinking about this right now. And so I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll that we'll see some interesting experiments, um, and that that might show that we can actually organize collective activity that creates an impact that is valuable. Rather than damaging, and that and that those who participate get rewarded for that participation. It's not such a complex com- concept if you abstract it out to that to that level. I think we can. I think we can get there. Um, and at least um, I'm I'm excited to apply create as much creativity as we can to to exploring it. I mean, I love it, and I want you to spend as much time as you can. I mean, it, it, it's so, as you know. I mean, I always say that we've got to move away from a definition of success based on money, power, fame one that rewards those who succeed in putting our humanity and the earth at the center of our systems and yet getting from here to there is the work the work of our of, of our and it's, the next generation it is and it's a it's a massive transformation but we've gone through these massive transformations before i mean industrial society was a massive transformation uh uh information society massive transformation uh, we, 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 we we we've shown that we can do that um it's messy uh, there's a you know there are winners and losers in that in those situations. We have to be very thoughtful uh, uh, as to uh, as to how to manage through that through it to reduce the number of losers and maximize the number of winners. But we but we have done it before. I think we can do it again. I do too. I do too. But where where Tim, you know, we've talked blockchain, we've talked technical. But where do you personally get your deepest inspiration and your and, and where does your creativity reside if there is a place? Uh, I guess for me, and this is something that I've long been, it, it, it resides in the future. The way I get inspired is by giving myself permission to think about the future and not just about the present. And, you know, I, I, I totally accept that I can sometimes be a bit escapist and uh, avoiding the kind of grittiness and, 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 uh, and the reality of present day problems. But the, but the truth is, you know, uh, this ability to think about the future and imagine the world in a better way than it is 
um, and, and use that as inspiration to move forward is something that we've done for a long time. I mean, you, you know, some people call it utopianism, and I, I actually think utopianism has a role to play. I mean, when Thomas More, back in the 16th century, came up with the idea of utopia, it was a thought experiment in what a collectivist society might look like as a response to the, you know, uh, kind of incredible issues and problems that the Renaissance was generating, right? Uh, um, uh, violence and, uh, and, and all kinds of political and, 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 and societal issues that were being created by the Renaissance. And so he, he created something he called Utopia, which was this little island, this little society that was this thought experiment in, 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 in collectivism. And, and you know, he was really the first, at least you know, in Western society anyway, um, to, 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 to show that thinking about the future was a useful activity. And now we tend to think of utopianism as a sort of a, almost a net, we have a negative view of utopianism, that somehow it's, it's, it, it's too optimistic, it's too, but, but I, I genuinely believe that there's a role for utopianism, and, 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 and particularly in a dystopian moment. And, you know, you, you know, it'd be hard not to see the current moment as a bit of a, of a dystopian moment, that the combination of climate, the pandemic, uh, the, 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 the sort of failure of, of, of many aspects of capitalism, I mean, the you know, the, the, there's just so many things that look really tough, um, and um, and yes, we have to work on them uh, in the moment. But uh, but I but I really think that that it's helpful to have uh, to give ourselves permission to think about the future uh, in a more utopian way, in order to see clues as to what directions we might want to follow, to see things that are worth aiming for. Um, you know, uh, uh, to see things that are, I mean, you know, I mean, I, 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 I don't want this to sound tra- trite, but when, you know, when Martin Luther King said, I have a dream, he was thinking about the future, not just the present, right? And so I, I, I think we need, I think this is a moment when, and I certainly, for me anyway, find myself wanting to spend just a little bit of time thinking out into the future, whether it's a decade or, or five decades or whatever it might be, uh, and in, in order to just imagine how things how things could be. Um, another book that I that, that I read this year that I that, that I, I you know science fiction is I've always loved science fiction and I think part of what I've loved about science fiction was while on the one hand and actually in recent years it has been largely dystopian, but there have always been science fiction writers that have that have had an element of utopianism in their in their writing and you know I think of people like Frank Herbert who when I was a kid introduced me to the idea of eco- of ecology. Um, with his book Dune, um, but recently Kim Stanley Robinson um, mm. wrote a book called called The Ministry of the Future, which was kind of about how we might manage the climate in a different way. And you know, there's definitely dystopian elements to it too. But but I think he is an example of a of a of a contemporary uh, uh, science fiction writer who 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 balances both dystopia and utopia in interesting ways. And so um, uh, uh, and I think we need we need a bit of that. We need a bit of utopianism. I love that. And if you can't get through the whole book, Ezra Klein does a great podcast on on his book. Um, I love that you also say whether it's five or 10 years, think about the future. Is that a practice that you would say to people to do? I think so. I think so. I think it's, it's you know, it's, it's um, you know, my good friend who recently retired as CEO of Ford, Jim Hackett, always used to have this construct in his head of now near far, right? Anything he was dealing with, any problem he was thinking about, he'd say, okay, how do I think about it in the now state? How do I think about it like six months from now or a year from now? How do I think about it five years from now? So he was never, he was never trying to solve a problem only in the moment. Um, and I think that's a very helpful way of, a way of thinking. Any problem you should be imagining, what's the now state? What's the near state? What's the far state? So that you are not one being overly reactive, that you're giving yourself permission to, to imagine how certain um, uh, uh, often, you know, really important uh, driving forces might change what might be possible. It's, you know, something as simple or not simple, but something like Moore's law, something like Moore's law for instance, might, uh, might affect what technology is able to do for us and therefore give us different opportunities to solve a problem in different ways. So I think, I, I think this idea of Thinking about the future as well as thinking about the now, with whatever problem that you're tackling, is worth is worth is a good practice. I love what Jim says, and in a way, it's a more pragmatic way of saying what we say at Acumen. That I would characterize what you've been talking about as the moral imagination, the humility to see the world as it is, and the audacity to imagine what it could be, and the resolution to then go make it happen. Yeah, I like that now near 
and then looking into the future is um, it's a really powerful construct. Um, on really dark days, I think about the miserable state of what is and then the, the world that we need to build. But um, it's what you do so brilliantly, Tim. Um, we only have time for one more question and I have about 50 because I could talk to you forever. But you've mentioned a couple of books. If there were one that you would recommend to people, only one that might, I know it's a miserable question, but only one that would, um, that might ground them in, in this future thinking or just a piece of advice. This is a- Okay, I, you're going to hate me for this, but it's your book. People oh, come on, Tim. I'm That's sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, you shouldn't have asked me that question then. No, <laughs> I, I, I uh, uh, honestly, though, I think you're dead. I mean, you're, you're, I mean, your your book, and and I, this is like we did not talk about this in advance. So, I I I, uh, I, I honestly think that that um, that combining our humanity with our imagination and with a with a kind of a duty to do something about that is what your book speaks to so elegantly and so beautifully, and that's what we need in this in this moment. So I'm sorry for embarrassing you, but that is what I would recommend everybody reads. Well, thank you, Tim. So not allowed, but I really appreciate that. Um, when you talk, you make me think about the definition of hard-edged hope as well, that what is hope if not a belief that things can get better? And again, that resolution to help make them so, and that is what you do so beautifully with design thinking. That is what you do so beautifully as an advisor, as a dreamer, as a doer, and most certainly as a friend. I couldn't be prouder to have you as my friend Tim. and um, an acumen in, in so much of the work that I do is what it is because of the influence that you've had. And so just huge thanks. And I, I can't wait to see this future you help us build. Oh, thank you, Jacqueline. You know, I feel the same way. Uh, uh, work together, our relationship has been incredibly important to my life and my work and uh, uh, you're a constant inspiration. Um, and this has been a tremendous conversation and realized it's been too long since we had one of these conversations. So I'm very grateful that we've, we've had it now. It's just the beginning, particularly now that I know we both have this, what does it mean to be a neighbor in the most hyper-local way and in the global way, which I think is a part of our next chapter too. So see you soon, Tim Brown. Thanks so much, Jacqueline. Thank you. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com/support.